Good morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll excuse the children to carefully, cautiously, and calmly walk downstairs. Father, thank you for this time that we have to gather in your name. I thank you, Father God, that you have sent your Son for us. I thank you, Father God, that you've given this opportunity this morning to come together as the body of Christ. Spirit of God, stir our hearts. Come alongside of us and strengthen us, teach us, and encourage us. I ask, Father, that you would be with the children as they go downstairs, that you would encourage them, teach them, and fill them with the thrill of knowing Jesus. Be with them, Father. Empower each one of the teachers and helpers. Speak through them. I thank you, Father God, that you will also speak to us from your word. More of you, less of me. Transform us and mature us. In the name of your Son, amen. Children, go have fun and learn about Jesus. We're continuing this morning in our series that Zach started last week. And if you haven't, if you didn't get a chance to hear Zach's sermon last week, go online and get it. I told him after the service last week that it's really great if you have a home run in one game, but he had a home run twice. So two, two home runs in the same day. He set us up for this series really well. I hope I embarrassed you, brother. <laughs> this is an exciting series. Mark is unique. It's special. It was written to Gentiles, and presumably a lot of scholars think that those Gentiles were in Rome, but it really doesn't matter where they're at. He was writing to Gentiles, and this is why Mark doesn't spend a lot of time with the genealogies and a lot of the other Jewish aspects that you're going to find in the other Gospels. Mark also emphasizes the lordship of Jesus. He emphasizes his power and his authority over demons and temptation, Satan and disease. And he emphasizes Christ's authority to forgive sin. It's an amazing letter for us to study. The passage that we're going to look at today tells of two events on two Sabbaths. And each of these stories, Jesus teaches and shows and demonstrates that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, at first glance, you go, so he's the Lord of the Sabbath. It's extremely important for us to understand how deep this is for us as believers. So to begin with, we need to, we need to think of two things. And these are aspects of the Sabbath that help us as we look at today's passage. The first one is God's purpose for establishing the Sabbath. The second one is how the Sabbath was corrupted by the Jewish leaders and how corrupted it became by the time of Jesus' ministry. First, let's talk about God's establishing the Sabbath. The word Sabbath comes from the Hebrew Shabbat, meaning to rest or to cease. God is the one who instituted the Sabbath. He gave it to his people, the Jews. He began this in Genesis 2-3. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. 
That's the beginning of the Sabbath. Then, and then later, God refines that. He gives detail to it, and he gives more design. And we find this in the uh, Ten Commandments. <clears throat> so we'll, we'll pick it up in Exodus 20, beginning in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner that is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Notice the pattern in the Ten Commandments concerning the Sabbath. Work six, rest one. One character in our fellowship said, do you think I could go work one and rest six? (laughs) What's God's pattern? Work six, rest one. He really doesn't say what day that is. God rested in Genesis 2-3. What does that mean that God rested? What it means is he was satisfied with creation. He was satisfied that it was completed and very good. And he would look at that creation. He would delight in the beauty and completeness of his created work. He's, he's taking a moment and he's going, wow, this is awesome. What's he saying to us? He's saying to his people, stop every seven days to remember. Stop and remember, enjoy, and worship the fact that I am the creator. He wants people to stop working and focus on him. Focus on me, the creator, the source of everything. Take one day to do that. So God intended the Sabbath to be a day of joy and remembering, honoring, and delighting in God. How do we do that? What's the prescription? Whatever you do, work-wise, whatever your work, whatever you do, don't do it on that one day. It's that simple. That's the rest. That was it. Worship God. Take a day of rest. Don't work. It was for rest, recreation, restoration, and worship. Now, the other thing that we see developed in the Jewish people was that the Sabbath began on Friday evening. This is how they kept track of their days. So the Sabbath began on Friday evening, extended through Saturday, and ended on Saturday evening. That was the Sabbath. What we would call Friday evening, all day Saturday and Saturday evening. So why do we do what we're doing today? Because this is what we call Sunday. So we need, to, we need to kind of sort this out too to help us understand Sabbath. The Jews counted days of the week. They didn't have names for them. You wouldn't have two Jewish people going, hey, what are you doing on Tuesday? There was no Tuesday. Monday, Tuesday, all of those names came much later in human history. 
So what the Jews did was they referred to each day of the week in reference to the Sabbath. Sunday, what we call Sunday, would have been then the first day after Sabbath. So it all related to the Sabbath. You do the Sabbath, the next day is the first day after Sabbath. So you might greet somebody as a Jew and you might go, Hi, how you doing on first day? That's how they counted the week. So here we are on first day. What we also then see, and you, see, you can see this in Acts 20, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, and Revelation 1, 10, that the early Christians began gathering for worship, instruction, and fellowship on that first day. Why? What else happened on the first day? Jesus rose from the dead. That's the day of resurrection. It was the first day. Go look at the scriptures. When did he raise from the dead? On the first day. The first day after the Sabbath. This is how Sunday became the day of worship. God established this. So that's our point one. Point two. God established something very wonderful and very beautiful, and it was corrupted extensively corrupted. From the time of Moses to the time of Jesus, the Sabbath accumulated numerous rabbinic rules. I mean, it's hideous what the Jewish leadership did. The Pharisees in particular, they made this something so terribly heavy, it was oppressive. As a matter of fact, the central text of rabbinic Judaism devotes 24 chapters detailing the acceptable behavior on one day, the Sabbath. 24 chapters about what you could and couldn't do on that one day. Here's some examples. And if you ever want to just go, what in the world? Go through this whole thing. I mean, it is unbelievable. So there were laws on the Sabbath concerning wine, honey, milk, spitting. Don't be spitting on, on the Sabbath, brother. Writing. How you did your laundry or not. Anything that might be contrived as work was forbidden. So what the Pharisees did was they started defining work. On a Sabbath then, a scribe could not carry their pen or whatever they wrote with. Couldn't carry that. A tailor could not, could not pick up a needle and, and move it across the room. That was work. Couldn't do that. A student could not carry their books. I really like this one. No insect could be killed on the Sabbath. So if, if I'm on a Sabbath day and I go fishing, and that big old ugly mosquito lands on my cheek and I go, I've broken the Sabbath law. I'm not sure what to do with that. You could not light the flame of a candle. You, you couldn't light a candle on the Sabbath. You couldn't extinguish a candle. So maybe on Thursday, you, low, light, you lighted, you, you lit all the candles. On the Sabbath, you couldn't put them out. Nothing could be bought or sold. This one's important for today's lesson. Sick people were only allowed enough treatment to keep them alive. 
And we're only going to do what will keep you breathing. That's it. Anything other than that would be considered work. So any medical treatment improving a person's condition, if you were actually going to improve someone's health, that was considered work, and it was prohibited. That's nice. Here's a really goofy one that I've always thought, this is, this is nuts. A person was only allowed to travel 3,000 feet from their home. Well, because of the corruption of the rabbis, they realized, well, that doesn't work real well for us because we'd like to go 3,020. So how are we going to get around that? So in their corruptness, they made a way around that. And here's how it works. So you know the Sabbath is coming and you've planned to go the 3,020 steps, right? So on Thursday, you take some food from your home and you walk the 3,000 feet and you place the food there, wherever that's at. Then on the Sabbath, you could walk the 3,000 feet to that food and since the food is there and it's from your home... That means that's your home. It's an extension of your home. That would allow you to go another 3,000 feet. Can we say corrupted? This, this Sabbath idea was totally corrupted. The Pharisees made the Sabbath into this thing that's all about religious works and their oppressive power over the people. There was almost nothing more oppressive on the Jewish people than the Sabbath. You could do nothing. You're constantly trying to remember what all of the rules were. What if I worked? Because if you're a good Jew, you don't want to break God's law. And the Pharisees are the ones who are telling you what the law is. So the Sabbath then was terribly, incredibly corrupt. And it became an intense battleground between Jesus and the Pharisees. This was huge. The Pharisees could not stand at Jesus because of how he treated the Sabbath. That gets us to today's passage. The first part of the passage is in Mark 2, beginning in verse 23. One Sabbath... He was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any, but the priests... The priests were only allowed to eat and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, when he said those two things, the Pharisees went crazy. He just pushed all their buttons in every way possible. They are totally incensed. Why? Because Jesus is messing with their authority. Now, let's back up a little bit. What, what's this deal with the, them walking through the fields? So remember, there, there weren't roads like we understand them. 
So you'd have a path from one place to another, and they would very often wander through the agricultural land, and if it was the time of harvest, you'd be walking along, and, and let's say it's wheat, and, and so people would walk along, and they'd, they'd take a hand, and they'd take a, head, a handful of heads of wheat. And you take the heads of wheat, and you, you rub between your hands, and all of the chaff is removed, and you end up with kernels of wheat, and you pop in your mouth. I've done that. I remember pulling up alongside of my wheat field. I'm, I'm on, a, on another field, and I'm in the tractor. I get out of the tractor, and I'm, I'm kind of inspecting my crop. And as I'm inspecting my crop of wheat, I go through, and I pull a few heads off. Pop it in there. What a good snack. And somebody who knows what I've done was in the first service, and they go, yeah, and it turns into gum. <laughs> and it does. And it's like, I know you got it, brother. So here's these people, the, the disciples, they're walking through the grain fields and they scoop up a handful of heads of wheat or barley and have a meal. So the Pharisees accuse the disciples of working. That's work. It's not allowed on the Sabbath. They saw the disciples guilty of reaping, sifting, thrashing, winnowing, and preparing a meal. All of those were illegal. They were, they were breaking the law. None of those activities were permitted on the Sabbath. You've got to be kidding. So Jesus responds to this. And he responds with a story that's found in 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 6. And in this story, David is fleeing from Saul. And he comes to the tabernacle, which was located at Nob. It's about a mile north of Jerusalem. David and his men are hungry. They're, they're, they don't have enough food. They're, they're, they're really low on provisions of any kind. And he comes to the tabernacle, and David asks Amalek, the, the priest, for food. Well, what's the food at the tabernacle? Well, the only thing that's there were 12 loaves of consecrated bread. And that bread was, sold, was set on the, the golden table in the, in the holy place. And only priests were allowed to eat this bread. But Amalek showed compassion to David. And to David and his men, he, he let them have the consecrated bread. They needed it. God did not punish Amalek or David or his men for their actions. He allowed, God allowed a ceremonial law to be violated for the sake of meeting an urgent human need. So Jesus' argument with the Pharisees is if it was permissible for Amalek, to, a human priest, to do this, to make an exception, an exception to God's ceremonial law, it was surely appropriate for the Son of God to disregard unbiblical rabbinic Tradition to meet the need of the disciples. The disciples were hungry, so they had a snack of wheat. Big deal. The religious leaders weren't really concerned with that. They're far more concerned with preserving their own power than with the needs of anyone else. And their power was in keeping the thumb on the people of God. The Sabbath was so oppressive. So Jesus exposes 
their arrogant hypocrisy. The Pharisees are completely exposed by Jesus as hypocrites. And it was the Pharisees who actually were the violators of the Sabbath. Now let's go on. Because in that passage, he says, the Sabbath was made for man, and man the Sabbath. And the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Why did this make the Pharisees so angry? The reason is that Jesus is saying clearly, their understanding would have been very clear, Jesus is claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the creator, the one who designed the Sabbath in the first place. And he's Lord of it. That's what he's saying. I am Lord over your Sabbath day. He also says that he's the Son of Man. The Son of Man was a messianic title that came from Daniel chapter 7, 13 through 14. And Jesus is saying, I am the divine king who created the Sabbath. So he's He's saying, I'm equal to God. I am God in that statement. And the Pharisees can't handle that. And the Pharisees, in their hypocrisy, they saw themselves as the only authority to interpret God's word and to understand God's will. So that's where they were at in their arrogance. They saw themselves as the only ones who had that connection with God, even those standing right in front of them. Right there with them was the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ. They see Him face to face. He's infinitely more authoritative. He's the Son of God Himself. They didn't see it because they were wrapped up in their religion and their hypocrisy. Jesus in his ministry, he's, he's characterized by grace. The Pharisees are, are characterized by pride and works. Jesus demonstrated mercy and compassion. They, carried up, they cared only about protecting their own positions of power and being oppressive. Now, that's the first story. But in all of, all of the Gospels, these two stories are connected There's usually a chapter break in the numbering. Whoever numbered them goofed. These go together. So this is Mark chapter 3, verse 1. It's another Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Verse 3, it says, he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. So Jesus, Jesus is setting something up. Jesus kept doing this because he, he wanted to violate the Sabbath. He wanted to violate the Sabbath of the Pharisees to expose their wickedness. He not only broke the Sabbath laws, but by calling God his Father, And and saying that he's the Lord of the Sabbath, he made himself equal to God. The Pharisees couldn't handle that. Now, what about this man? I love this story. I mean, here's this guy. So you're you're in the synagogue. You've got all these people. Everybody's gathered together to worship. And one of those, those guys has got a withered hand. It says withered hand. Well, the word withered there, the Greek term refers to a dead plant. So the man's hand 
in whatever way, was not usable. It's dead. It's just kind of hanging there. So if somebody was here with that, we'd all notice that. Somebody walked in here and their hand was dead. I mean, you'd, you'd go, and you'd try not to look, right? It would be noticed. So everybody knows, and probably everybody knew the guy anyway because he's in their community. Hey, yeah, that's, that's Joe. He's got no hand. Okay, all right. So remember that. He, th- this is what's happening. However, a withered hand is not terminal. This was a serious problem. It really probably kept him from work. But it's not terminal. Jesus could have waited until Tuesday to heal the man's hand. He didn't have to do it on the Sabbath. Jesus chose to do it on the Sabbath. Why? Why now? Why on the Sabbath? To stir stuff up for a purpose. Jesus does it specifically to break the Sabbath rules. Openly assaulting the false religious system of the Pharisees. Jesus hates religion and oppression. The Pharisees are watching. And the watching there in the, in the Greek, they're watching intently. They are zeroed in. What is Jesus going to do? Because we're going to catch him. We're going to catch him and we're going to accuse him and we're going to stone him to death because he's breaking the law. They desperately wanted him to violate their Sabbath rules. They viewed Jesus then as he calls this man forward. They're they're accusing him of work. What's Jesus going to do? So you've got this man in, in, in... Jesus actually becomes even more aggressive because of how he does this. Mark 3, he said to the man, come here. In this story, as it's portrayed in the inspired word, the, the guy didn't go, hey, Jesus, dead hand, would you heal me? All we know is the guy showed up. He isn't asking for help. Jesus just calls him out and he says, come on, come on down. Come up here. So in my mind, I, I picture this, this guy coming forward. And the one hand, I, I keep, I don't know whether it's right or left. A lot of people said it was his right hand. I don't know. So you've got this guy, and he's in front of all of the synagogue. Everybody's there. He's got the withered hand. He's standing there, and Jesus probably smiles at him a little bit, and then he turns to the Pharisees. And he says to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or kill? But they were silent. He's already nailed them. Because they're experts in the law. They knew the scriptures. They knew the answer was that, yeah, of all days, the Sabbath was a day for good and not bad. Go back to the definition that we talked about earlier. It's the Sabbath. God designed that for this good thing of rejoicing in what God has done. They knew the answer. So what's really going on here? The real issue comes down to this. Who really represents God? Jesus or the Pharisees? Mark 3, 5. 
And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. That is awesome. Awesome. But, but picture what's going on. Jesus is staring at him. Think of that. The eyes of the creator of the universe, and they're staring at you with anger. What would you do? Some of me thinks panic. They don't get it. And it also says specifically, he is angry. This is the one place in Scripture, of all of Scripture, this is the one place where you find it explicitly telling us that Jesus was angry. We know he was angry at other times. The two times in particular, when he cleansed the temple. Was he angry? Yeah, he was angry. But this is the only time where Scripture says he was angry. Why was he angry? Because of their oppression of the people and their disbelief. But it's also connected to something else. Anger. It's connected with grief. He was angry and he was grieved. At exactly the same time, these two things are going on. Jesus is perfectly able to be angry and perfectly able to be grieved. What's going on? He's first angry at their unbelief and their rejection of the truth. And he's grieved. He's grieved because of the consequences of their hard hearts. He knows what the consequences are. Scripture teaches human responsibility. Every sinner is culpable before God for his own sin. None of us are exempt from that. Unbelievers will be held guilty for rejecting the truth of the gospel and will go to hell because of their own unwillingness to embrace the truth of Christ. That's what sends people to hell. Rejecting the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we see happening here. That's why Jesus is grieved. Now let's go back to the story. 3-5, that awesome sentence. He stretched it out. The, the, the man with the withered hand stretched it out and it was restored. How would we respond to that here this morning? Somebody comes up here and they go, oh, I've got a withered hand. And, and we go, God, heal him. And poof, he's got a new hand. How would we respond? Like real Baptists? Oh, my goodness, if that happened, we'd be bouncing off the walls, wouldn't we? This is awesome. And remember, the only thing Jesus does to heal this man is says, come here. And then he says, stretch out your hand. Has Jesus done any work? It's a tricky question. It's the creator of the universe. Yeah, he did a lot of work. He made the guy. He, I just give you a new hand. On the other hand, he didn't do a single work other than help someone who had a need. 
The Pharisees couldn't handle it. Can you imagine what's going on in the synagogue? Everybody knew this guy. Everybody saw the hand. They saw it before and they saw it after. You know, they're all leaving after the, the worship service is over and, and they're all going, let me see it. Let me see the new hand. This is a huge miracle. And it's even bigger in some ways because of what the underlying lesson is. Yeah, the guy's got a new hand. That's huge. But the real big thing is that in the middle of all of that, instead of accepting Jesus as the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the one who created the universe, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Pharisees are what? They're incense. They can't handle it. In Luke 6, 11, the parallel to this passage, it says they were filled with rage. Why in the world would you see a miracle like that and go, I am totally, completely consumed with rage? Makes no sense whatsoever. Jesus has attacked their self-righteous spiritual pride. And they can't control their vehement desire to kill him. All they want to do after he's demonstrated beautifully who he is in reality, their response is killing. So here we are in this, this gospel, third chapter. So we're really pretty close to the beginning. And we have the official, because this is the Pharisees, this is the official Jewish response to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. What's the official Jewish response? Kill him! Kill him! Kill him! You, we can't handle this! That's the official Jewish response. That's ugly. Mark ends this story this way. Mark 3, 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. And, and the word destroy there, it actually means to obliterate. It's not just kind of, sort of destroy. It's like you wipe him off the planet. Bless you. The Pharisees wanted to obliterate Jesus. Kill him. Now, why the Herodians? This is amazing. And this also points to the same picture of the Pharisees. The Herodians were not a sect of Judaism. And they were, they really were staunch enemies of the Pharisees. They didn't get along. So it's interesting that the Jewish leaders go to their enemy to share in trying to kill Jesus. What we also find is in the New Testament that every time the Herodians appear in the New Testament, they are in alliance with the Pharisees against Jesus. Who have they, who have they aligned with? The world. In, this, in these stories, this, this whole message about the Sabbath, Jesus perfectly, beautifully, and powerfully communicates that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. 
He is Lord over the Sabbath. And he is demonstrating that he wants nothing to do with human religion. Religion doesn't get it done. This passage, these stories of what Jesus was doing should remind us that religion never saves. Religion cannot save you. Keeping a set of rules doesn't get a person saved. Salvation is only through faith in Jesus. We do not gather on Sundays to promote religion. I think you would, you would find Zach and I ready to just draw swords. We are not about religion. I don't like it. That's not what the gospel's about. That's not what church is about. We do not gather to promote religion. We gather to celebrate. Think, think back here to the definition of s- Sabbath. We gather to celebrate and promote what God has done. What has God done? He's given us the gospel. We, we're going to say, this is really good. This is fantastic. This is what only God can do. That's why we gather. And we gather to encourage one another, to love and good works, to build one another up. Why? For more religion? No, we're not doing this for religion. We're doing this so the glory of God shows up in the gospel. We have a mission statement at FBC. Rescue the lost, transform and mature believers. RTM, rescue, transform and mature. What's that all about? That's taking people out of darkness. That's the rescue. It's beginning to disciple them and, and, and transform them into the image of Christ. Making disciples. That's what that is. That whole package. That's what glorifies God. That's what we're about. And what this also means that as a church, as FBC, it means that we welcome on a Sunday service or any other service, we welcome the worst, black-hearted, wretched sinner. It doesn't matter what they look like, smell like. It doesn't matter where they've been in the past or, or what they're in right now. If they are ugly in their sin, come on in so they can hear the gospel. It's about the gospel. It's about the glory of God. What glorifies God the most in our world today is when people come to Christ. When people grow in their Christianity and become more like Jesus. Why? So they can go out and preach the gospel and proclaim the risen Savior. In our ministry here at FBC, we purposely help people in need and show them in meeting their needs the reality of Jesus Christ. He is alive. He's totally in control and he's just as glorified today as he was when he rose from the dead. We want to portray that. We want to portray the reality of God's love. That comes with some messiness. As a church, we must never forget that Jesus died for all people. Everyone. He died for them. And our mission is to present and proclaim the truth to all people. There's a dark side to that because some will go, no, I don't want anything to do with that. And they will reject Jesus. That's not our, that's, it hurts. But that shouldn't deter us. 
Our goal should still be, I'm going to preach. I'm going to proclaim. I'm going to live the gospel. Our task remains the same. Proclaim the gospel and encourage one another that are already in Christ to be more like him so that we can represent the glorious kingdom of God in this time. You are here in this time for a reason. It has nothing to do with religion. It has to do with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's be about the kingdom. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you that you have given us truth and you have freed us from the difficulties and pain and suffering of sin. I ask, Father God, that you would continue to use us. Holy Spirit, come alongside and encourage us, teach us, direct our steps, make it clear to us who's the next one to proclaim to, who's the next person we proclaim the gospel to. Give us passion for the truth of what Jesus has done. And as we gather together on Sundays, let us be filled with rejoicing and exuberance at what Jesus has done for us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Amen.